listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Coming up on today's show, the historic Pierre's Playhouse in Victor officially reopens this month as Pierre's Theater. And I thought, wow, I have to do it. Plus, one way Durango, Colorado is trying to tackle its growing affordable housing crisis. Communities get moments of change, we're in it. But first, a conversation with High Country News reporter Nick Bolin about his recent story, Vacation Resort Replaces Affordable Housing in Teton Valley. In June 2020, residents of the former Rockin' H Mobile Home Park in Victor got an eviction notice from the park's new owner, the Teton Valley Resort. Over the course of the next year, most of the tenants left, all but one family who stayed in their trailer even as construction on the resort's expansion started around them. KHOL's Kyle Mackey spoke with reporter Nick Bolin to get the latest. Nick Bolin, thank you so much for joining us today on KHOL. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us about the Hidalgo family who are the main characters in your story? Sure. So the Hidalgo family have lived in Victor for about 20 years, basically all of that time in what was the Rock and H mobile home park. And the Hidalgo family has been in an extended legal fight over this eviction proceedings with the owners of the park for, uh, yeah, for more than a year now. And, you know, they, work in Jackson, they live in Victor, and they, you know, at least in my story, were kind of interesting because they represented so much of the housing crisis that's spilled over into Teton Valley because, you know, for for most of their time there, they had this affordable place to live. That's no longer the case. So I wonder if you can tell me, you know, this story was so striking because the Hidalgo family became the only tenants to stay um, in their in their trailer after the eviction notices had been served. What did they tell you about your decision to stay, even as all of their neighbors were leaving? Well, part of it was, you know, about this lawsuit that their claims were that, you know, they faced, you know, unlawful harassment and kind of other actions from the resort uh, as um, they were attempting to uh, evict the family and and the other residents of the park, but you know some of it, um, you know, I talked to Mario Hidalgo was simply necessity. Like they had a hard time finding other places to go. As of this summer, you know they've left the park. There's a settlement in the works between the family and the park, and you know they ended up moving into a townhome in Driggs. And their trailer park lot fees was about $500 a month. So they own the trailer. They paid, they paid for a place for it to go. And their new townhome, their kids help out with, with some of the rent. Um, so they make it work, but the rent is uh, $2,300. So just an enormous increase. And that was, you know, according to them, the cheapest place they could find. I was going to ask you about the latest in the legal battles. Um, You mentioned that they're in the process of a settlement with the resort. I understand there's also another ongoing um, lawsuit between the Hidalgo family and a few other former tenants in the resort. Can you tell us about that? As of right now, there were kind of final stages of a potential settlement. So neither side can, can say all that much publicly under these terms. But then there's a separate active complaint 
that alleges racial discrimination. Um, all of the mobile home park tenants are Latino. Um, and then unlawful evictions that was filed on behalf of the Hidalgo family and then three other families that's um, currently being considered by uh, HUD, the, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. And as far as speaking publicly, you have talked to the new owner of Teton Valley Resort for your, in, in your reporting. Can you tell me about what his response has been? What is, what is he saying about sure. this? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, Randy Larson has said that he, you know, he has the legal right to develop this resort, which is, which is true, that, you know, they, they purchased this tract of land and they want to convert it to RV spots. And, you know, he has said that a lot of these incidents are, you know, misunderstandings that what the family took as harassment, which is kind of normal construction. And that, you know, he had talked pretty openly that he recognizes that there is a housing crisis. And he says that, you know, he provides rentals in cabins or, you know, uses those RV spots to house seasonal employees at Jackson Hole um, and some of the other ski resorts during the winter. So he has kind of chalked a lot of it up to a misunderstanding and also, you know, said the family has been kind of intransigent and has refused to get out. And, you know, at a point this summer, he said that they were squatting because that their, their lease was up by then. And so that even though they were trying to pay rent, it was, it was illegitimate. Now, this is obviously just one example of a loss of some affordable housing uh, to make way for either, you know, tourism or luxury development. And we see this happening all across the mountain West. I wonder from your perspective as a regional reporter, how, this situation kind of fit in for you, you know, what are your reflections on that? Oh yeah. I mean, so I, I live in a, I would say kind of the equivalent of like a Victor Driggs of a ski town in Colorado, which is how I got into kind of covering this stuff. And, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of mountain counties in Colorado, they've all set housing market records in the past 18 months. Um, It really does kind of seem like the issue of the moment in the Mountain West. And, you know, it, it, it's just continuing. I saw this morning in the Wall Street Journal, the uh, co-owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers bought thousands of acres in a giant ranch house in, in Teton Valley this week. So it doesn't seem like this is going anywhere. All right. Well, Nick, thank you so much for your reporting. And once again, for joining us today on KHOL. Yeah, thanks for having me. The spotlight is shining once again at Pierre's Theatre in Victor. Now under new ownership, the historic theatre officially reopened this month with a holiday production of A Christmas Carol. KHOL contributor Kate Driscoll has the story. There were lights twinkling, the smell of fresh popcorn in the air, and the hum of an excited crowd at Pierre's Theatre in Victor for the opening night of A Christmas Carol. The show is the first production to take place in the newly reopened theater, and the first show to be put on by the ACT Foundation, a new nonprofit founded by Melissa West. 
I just love being in the theater. I love the history that's in this Pierre's Theater. I love the family that created the Pierre's Theater. Any opportunity I have to put something on on stage, I'm going to jump at it. West is a lifelong Idaho resident whose grandparents helped settle Teton Valley about 100 years ago. She recently founded the ACT Foundation to support and produce community theater, and she's using her background in thrift store management to do it. The foundation raises money through the new Second Act Thrift Store, also located in Victor. The thrift store has magic, and the magic provides amazing opportunities for the ACT Foundation. Most of the costumes and decorations and things have come through the thrift store, and it, it just goes hand in hand. The historic theater located on Main Street was built in the 1950s and later bought by the local Egbert family, who renamed it Pierre's Playhouse. The theater stayed in the family for decades, but had been on and off the market in recent years, according to the Teton Valley News. Wes says she dreamed of preserving the building as a theater, and Ann Fish ended up being the buyer who made that happen. I had heard about Melissa West from the ACT Foundation and that they were trying to preserve Pierre's. I had only ever been in here one other time for a movie, and um, it came across my desk, being in the real estate industry, that it was on the market again, and I thought, wow, I have to do it. Fish grew up surrounded by the arts in a musically talented family and has lived in Teton Valley or Jackson since 2001. While owning a theater wasn't her original intention, she says she's grateful for the opportunity to give back. I see this being a community gathering spot for the arts and entertainment and just a place of joy, a place where people can come and have fun and smile and enjoy live productions, enjoy music. I mean, I see so many opportunities. West says the ACT Foundation will continue to focus on raising money to support local theater productions and workshops year-round. Both she and Fish also say they're excited about the possibilities of continued collaboration. Possibly doing a summer play and a winter play and some drama classes in between, set design, lights, cameras, actions, all those things play into what our foundation wants to grow in our community. Bringing new life to the newly renamed Pierre's Theater all started this October with auditions for A Christmas Carol. Then opening night finally came. Merry Christmas to you and yours, Bob Cratchit. Moving forward, Fish says she has some modern updates planned for Pierre's. But one thing that will never change is the magic of bringing live local theater to Teton Valley at Christmas. When they brought the little children from the elementary schools, I was up in the projection room and I literally had goosebumps all over and was almost in tears because they were explaining, well, when the lights go down, then you, you get quiet. And then when the house lights are up and just that education piece of it was so exciting to me. The kids that are in the theater are just loving every bit of it and bringing joy back into our lives that we lost several times throughout the last few years. And so I'm grateful to be a part of it. The final performances of A Christmas Carol will be held on Friday and Saturday, December 10th and 11th. The shows, unfortunately for those who don't have a ticket, are all sold out. But if you happen to be walking by, you may just catch a glimpse of the magic of a theater brought back to life. For KHOL News, I'm Kate Driscoll.
you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next, KHOL Music Director Jack Catlin interviews the Jackson-based singer-songwriter Sydney Montana about the connection between music and poetry and his endless love of travel. Local musician Sidney Montana is a man of many talents. He is a poet, songwriter, musician, record producer, and book publisher. At the core of it all, Montana is a street performer. During the midst of an oil boom in the fields of North Dakota back in 2010, Montana began writing, developing his skills on the acoustic guitar, and putting his lyrics to music. Since then, he has produced over 150 songs performed across the Mountain West and has been featured on Wyoming Public Radio's Morning Music Show. Currently finalizing an album of new material, Sydney Montana joins us now in the KTRL Studios. So Sydney, I'm very curious. You started your music career rather late in your life. What spurred you to pick up the guitar in the first place? Well, in high school, you know, I was involved in sports, but the second thing that I was involved in was the, the student choir in high school. And then I never pursued any musical hobby or career, but then in 2010, kind of in the depths of the Great Recession, you know, I left this area and traveled to the oil fields up in North Dakota and went from broke to an extreme high income just in just in a matter of 750 miles, you know. Wow. So, but for that work, we had to live in, you know, rough conditions in man camps and, you know, long winters, cold environment, that kind of thing. And I just picked up the guitar and was uh, you know, strumming along, trying to sing some Fleetwood Mac, Johnny Cash songs, that kind of thing. And then I, I just realized it was taking a long time to memorize all these other artists' songs. So I just started writing and mm-hmm. that was the beginning of it. Can you touch a little bit more on the uh how the experience is performing in the street to your coworkers at the oil fields. How did that shape your style over the years? My involvement in, in the music industry hasn't been typical, or maybe it has for a street musician, but I, I think uh, it was a, a good learning process. It enables me to go out on the street and have a venue for performance, you know, rather than relying or get accepted into a bar venue or a mm-hmm. commercial venue venue and it allows me to practice my music and keep writing. So I've developed, you know, just a tremendous volume of work in that sense. It, it gave me a venue. So as I mentioned in the intro, you're also a poet. How do you see the connection between music and poetry? Are most of your song lyrics pulled directly from your poetry? Well, the poetry books that I've published are a a compilation of all my musical lyrics and poetry book form. So I don't know if there's a, a distinct separation of the two, you know, the music is poetry and the poetry is music. And I guess I hold myself out as a troubadour, a poet that uh, sets his lyrics to music. I mean, that's at least one of the definitions of troubadour that I've found. It's not necessarily a person that travels around and plays. It's just one that sets their poetry to musical lyrics. And so I, I think it's just all one. So you have some pretty deep lyrics with lyrics like just keep on moving, don't rest too long, and 
your curse, don't fight it, you're a traveling man. Your songs seem to deal with an overall theme of keeping an eye on the future rather than reflecting too much on the past. Can you elaborate on that for us? I've got kind of a mobile lifestyle, and I I guess where I feel safest is in the Rocky Mountains, And but I like to travel, and I like to travel from Jackson to North Dakota if, uh, if I find the need to go up there, and I certainly like traveling to Moab, Utah, which I've just returned after a three-week stay down there and a performance gig in one of the local venues. I've got a bit of an itch to travel, and so I'm always looking forward, and I'm looking at the the next project or the next adventure, the next accomplishment or goal. So Mm -hmm. saying that, a lot of my musical lyrics, you know, definitely draw from past experiences. You can hear music from Sydney, Montana, right here on KHOL during our local music hour that airs weekdays from 3 to 4 p.m. as well as on Saturday at the same time. Make sure to visit 891KHOL.org for more music, news, and culture. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. Just remember, it's straight ahead. Access to affordable housing is a major challenge in most Western towns. Durango, Colorado, is hoping to ease its housing crunch by purchasing a hotel and converting it into apartment units. If successful, it would be the city's largest affordable housing project ever. Sarah Flower reports for KSUT as part of our reporting collaboration with Rocky Mountain Community Radio and the Solutions Journalism Network, highlighting affordable housing solutions across the Mountain West. The city of Durango is currently working on the biggest affordable housing project to date by converting a 71-unit hotel into 120 units of affordable and transitional housing. The city of Durango has been working to purchase the Best Western Inn and Suites on U.S. Highway 160 since the beginning of the summer and is currently under contract for $7 million. The project, which is known as the Best Western Hotel Conversion, was given an extension last week for due diligence period before the November 22nd deadline to gather more information on the property. Jen Lopez has worked in housing for decades and is consulting with the city of Durango through her company, Project Moxie. Lopez feels the city is taking a strong stand, which she claims is unique for a public entity. We did a real estate option on the Best Western. We brought in a development partner to redevelop it. We put together a really strong team of local consultants in the city. A public entity said, this is important to us. We want to tie up an option. We want to put together a team. That kind of approach isn't very common, but it's really powerful. And so we have a resource. We want to put it in a play on our terms, and we want to put together a team to deliver what we need. The city is partnering with TWG Development, Construction and Management Company. They requested the extension of the due diligence period because they say it's taking longer than expected to evaluate the building, which they hope to be done by February of next year. City Councilor Barbara Noseworthy is excited about the Best Western Hotel conversion and at a city council meeting says the numbers just add up. Fantastic job. Fantastic. I was at the Aspero. I heard such good things about this firm, the developer that you've hired. And let me just see if I've got my math right. 75000 in consulting costs, a no-risk contract, 
and potential for $30 million investment in the community and 120 units. That's leverage I love to see. Rent for these units could range anywhere from $400 for a studio all the way up to $1,100 for a two-bedroom apartment. Estimates show that if all goes accordingly, these units may be available as early as 2024. Lopez says that while the Best Western Hotel conversion project is a step in the right direction, the community needs more to be done to combat the housing crisis. We have to build as we grow, and we haven't been building to, to our growth patterns in this area for a very long time. Part of that started in 2009 with the Great Recession, right? Everybody pulled back, so and we never really caught back up. There was a great study in 2018 statewide in Colorado, and that was cited as one of the biggest reasons that we were heading towards this crisis. And then what was expediting it was we didn't build for who was here, and then a whole bunch people came. Lopez says the key to moving forward around building is making sure there is diverse size, types, people, and to have local government subsidize infrastructure and then have the private sector build at cost and manage the properties. For Lopez, the time to start doing that is right now. Communities get moments of change. We're in it. I don't know if we have two years or five, but we have the right leaders right now and they understand we do have to increase production. There has to be some public benefit to the production. It can't just be have at it. There, there has to be a little bit of uh, give and take, but we do. We just need to build a lot more units right now. Reporting for KSUT News, I'm Sarah Flower. Now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this week. The Jackson branch of Community Entry Services, which provides an array of programs for adults with developmental disabilities, is in some serious funding trouble. Program director for the branch, Carolyn Worth, said in a meeting with Teton County electeds Monday that she needs help from local officials by the first of the year. We are going to be forced to make some very difficult decisions that could include drastic cuts in programming, consolidating our group homes, and in the absolute worst case scenario, discharging clients. Worth says her program budget was slashed 2.5% last year at the state level and faces another 2.5% cut this year. So Worth is asking local officials for emergency cash to try and attract more workers. This would get our staff from $15 an hour to $20 an hour. Hopefully starting, and really we do need to start this by January 1st so services aren't disrupted. Worth is asking for $89,000 collectively from the town of Jackson and Teton County. Behavioral health, that's the combination of mental health and substance use, was front and center at Monday's joint information meeting between town and county elected officials. A survey conducted this year found that the overall mental health of Teton County residents has decreased dramatically in recent years. Abby Ridgway, a consultant who helped conduct the questionnaire of over 1,000 locals, said the average resident reports about seven poor mental health days every month. That's an increase from about three in 2018 and several days above the national average. I often like to say people think of behavioral health as, as other people's problems. 
And I think we're now at a place in Teton County where this is every other person, meaning it's one out of two people or 50% of people are saying they need some kind of health service. In response to this data, a coalition of human services providers is looking into opportunities for how to improve behavioral health in Jackson Hole. They're implementing new programs already, but plan on returning to local electeds early next year to talk about specific policy and funding recommendations. December has arrived, but in much of the West, snowfall has not. Snowpack numbers in every part of the Colorado River Basin are lower than average for this time of year. Alex Hager from KUNC in Greeley, Colorado, has more. In most parts of Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico, snowpack is only around a quarter or a third of normal. Numbers are a little better to the north, where much of Colorado and Wyoming have about half as much snow as normal. Climate scientists say there's plenty of time left for conditions to improve, but they're watching these totals closely. Low snowpack means more than just meager skiing. It can have serious repercussions for the Colorado River. Water that supplies 40 million people throughout the southwest starts as winter snow in the Rockies. As the basin endures more than two decades of drought, cities and farms throughout the region can't afford another dry winter. I'm Alex Hager. The nonprofit organization 122 recently launched a housing assistance pilot program intended to help applicants find more secure places to live. The first-last deposit tool would pay for up to 70% of people's major first check they send to a landlord, usually including first and last month's rent and a security deposit, which can be a large chunk of change and a barrier for many folks. Jackson Teton County Affordable Housing Director April Norton said during a meeting with local electeds Monday that the program offers up to $3,000 for individuals or double that for families. We know that there are many, many individuals and families who are either living in unstable housing or they're living in housing that uh, where they are extremely cost burdened. That means they're paying more than 30% of their income towards housing, but many of these families are paying more than half of their income towards housing every month. Six local households have already found better rental situations through this program, which started in October. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. Subscribe now to Jackson Unpacked on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL. Jackson.